Matt Bernier, your show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter, at Bernier underscore Matt. This is episode 28 of the revamped show for Monday, August 17th, 2020. However, you listen to this thing, thank you for doing so. Number of ways to find the show. If you listen audio only, you have your Apple Podcast app, you have uh, Android device, you have InTheMoneyPodcast.com where you can find this show along with all the other shows that are produced over on In The Money Media, whether it is the flagship show, the In The Money Players Podcast, uh, whether it's the Racing Picks Players Podcast, whether it's JK Plus One, whether it's Talk Racing To Me with Naomi Tucker, whether it's the Redboard Rewind with Spencer Luganbuehl, any number of things. Now Horse Player Happy Hour is back. Uh, PTF and I will be back on Thursday afternoon if you want to tag along and enjoy some some refreshments and maybe play in a contest. Uh, we're only going to keep it to, I think, an hour this week, and we'll riff about a number of things while the contest is ongoing, but feel free to join us. The more the merrier. Um, if you listen or watch on YouTube, make sure the bell icon is lit up when you subscribe to the In The Money page. That way you get a notification anytime a new show or any new content is uploaded. To the In The Money page, all you need to do, go into that search bar on YouTube, type in Matt Bernier Show. This show, along with all the other 27, or the pre, the prior 27 shows, they'll all pop up there for your viewing and listening consumption. This week's show, we're going to start off with the Derby and the Oaks, talk about some of the Phillies, talk about the boys, the situation with Swiss Skydiver from this past weekend in the Alabama up at Saratoga, potentially what it could mean, what it may or may not end up looking like. Does she run against the girls, the boys, whatever it sounds like, the girls. But we can dive into that a little bit more. Then for the Friday feature this week, uh, Saratoga's race is on Friday rather light as far as the fields are concerned. We're going to take a look at Saratoga Race 7 for this coming Friday. And last Friday in the Friday feature, uh, no one, to my knowledge, when I went through and looked, had selected the winner. I'm not surprised. The winner was 51. So... Uh, I called up uh, a buddy of mine, my my best friend for the longest time, and he's, he plays a little bit, not a lot, but I thought this would be a good opportunity to kind of just throw a curveball at this thing. So my buddy Dante is going to be the guest for this week's Friday feature. Again, race number seven at Saratoga. It's a short field. There's only seven scheduled to go. Uh, one horse is cross-entered on Wednesday, so it may even be a smaller field than that. So there should be a new winner leading into this coming week. Uh, and again, if you want to get involved and be on next Monday's show, you need to leave your selection beneath the video player on YouTube. That's the that's the only way that I'll take anything. I don't want to hear about it on Twitter or in the email over on In The Money and all that kind of jazz. Beneath the video player on YouTube, leave your selection for Race 7 this coming Friday at Saratoga. If you win, you pick the winner, I'll contact you. We'll get this thing set up for next Monday. I, you know, I'd be surprised if someone didn't have the winner in such a short field this week. And again, last week was a bit of an anomaly. Far and away, I think the biggest price that we've had so far, a 50 to one shot. So I'm not going to, we'll just kind of turn the page. We'll start fresh this week. Like I said, got my buddy coming on. He'll help things out. Um, we'll just riff back and forth a little bit more because again, he's not necessarily the, the deep all in kind of player that many of the folks that listen and watch are, but he does play quite a bit and we've had some success together and we've got a number of stories that we can dive into. So Dante will join me in a little bit. And then after that, uh, it's been a while since I've done a Q and a, so I'm going to go back through some of the episodes past and pull some, 
some questions and some thoughts and comments. And I also got a direct message on Twitter the other day from uh, an individual talking about hedging and potentially what they should and shouldn't do as far as uh, trying to hedge their bet because they've got a pretty live ticket as far as the Derby future is concerned. So get into that after the Friday feature. Let's start off, though, with this past weekend. The big race was the Alabama Swiss skydiver. She put on an absolute show. She wins you know, the final margin of victory is not indicative of how easily she won that race. She was, what, six clear at one point, and then she was wrapped up for the final 16th of a mile. She earned a 102 buyer and, I believe, a 123 pace-adjusted time form U.S. rating. The interesting thing for me, if you want to, let's start off with the nitpicky pieces if you're trying to look for, um, I don't want to say say reasons to be against a horse like Swiss Skydiver, but uh, from a speed figure standpoint, I find it interesting. It, it, she has certainly earned figures that are, in that ballpark. Uh, this was the first triple-digit buyer she had ever earned, but she had been in the high 90s before, so this doesn't seem like it's an entirely sort of out-of-left-field kind of fig. But having said that, that then implies that Bonnie South, the runner-up who I liked, she ran her, she ran a good race. You know, I, I thought she would run as long as the race was, and, and just if it turned into sort of a war of attrition, she would be the one that would be able to sort of benefit from it. I believe on the gallop out, it looked like she galloped out about another half mile. So it is what it is. She ran a good race. She was second best in a field that was dominated by one special filly. Um, but that would imply that Bonnie South ran the best race of her life, which I'm not going to argue with. Uh, Harvey's little Goyle, who ran third, she improved her career best figure by five points. Uh, on Voutant, the fourth place finisher, she sort of stayed level with what she had earned in her race coming into it. She earned a 90 buyer in her most recent start. Uh, she earned an 88 here in this race. So it's it's not like the figs are... I, I, I'm not really disputing the figs. The only thing I want to kind of throw out there, playing devil's advocate, if you are so inclined to look at it and say she earned a 102 geared down, the final time looked very, very pedestrian. And before anyone brings anything up, you have, you cannot compare, and I hope I've done a good enough job of explaining how figures work, you can't compare the final times of the mile and a quarter Alabama this past weekend to the Travers from the weekend prior. It's two entirely different surfaces. It just it, it's it's not even apples to oranges. It's apples to watermelons. We're not talking the same thing. So so the fact that she ran three seconds slower or two and a half seconds slower than Tis the Law did I, I, that does not apply. It doesn't make a difference to me one way or the other. The speed figure would suggest she's she's certainly slower than Tis the Law, but she's not miles slower. Um, you know, do with it what you will. If you think maybe it's a, a, a few points high, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't argue with that just because, again, the fig implies that the second and third place finishers ran the best races of their career, and it's entirely possible. I think the other thing that needs to be noted is it was the only two-turn race on dirt at Saratoga on Saturday. Not only is it the only two-turn race, but at a mile and a quarter, it can be a little bit difficult to really narrow down figs when it comes to those sort of things when you only have one one sample to go off of as opposed to you know multiple multiple sprints at six furlongs on any given day you can kind of see if you think the track is sort of on par with you know what it should be or, or what par is as far as final times are concerned and things like that for there to only be one two-turn dirt race on Saturday it makes it a little bit difficult and the rarity that mile and a quarter races are run it's just an added wrinkle that, you know, the, the speed figure makers, they needed to work a little bit harder, I think, for a race like that, just again, because it's it, it's by itself. It, it's sort of a, a, a lone sailor out there. Um, but the performance itself was spectacular. 
And the fact that she was geared down the way that she was, there's plenty left in the tank, you would assume, for whichever race the connections choose to point to. Kenny McPeak and the ownership group alluded to the fact that it more likely than not would be the Kentucky Oaks the first Friday in September as opposed to taking on the boys the first Saturday in September. And, I, you know, I guess it depends how you want to look at things because at face value, you don't really want any part of Tis the Law. I mean, at this point, he's just head and shoulders above the rest of the field for the Kentucky Derby. That's including Authentic, Art Collector, Honor AP, New York Traffic, King Guillermo, Thousand Horses, all these other horses. It appears, anyway, that he's head and shoulders above them. But on the flip side, I, I just wonder, I think you can make a case that the as good as the three-year-old boys are, that the three-year-old girls are, are every bit as good, and perhaps the field is actually deeper than what the boys' division is. Because I, I'm going through this, and maybe I'm sounding like a bit of a Debbie Downer. I don't have really any interest in trying to beat Tis the Law in the Kentucky Derby. He just, to me, is is head and shoulders above the rest of the field. I, I was quite taken by the workout that we saw from this past weekend from King Guillermo. I thought he looked really good out on, on the main track at Churchill Downs. But I would basically just be playing him or picking him on the hope that he improves 15 to 20 points in this time off and tis the law regresses. Depending on the odds, I guess you could sort of make a case for that and say if you told me you were going to get 20 to 1 on King Guillermo, maybe I'd be enticed, but I, I can't imagine that being the case. Authentic, I've made clear, I don't think I don't think he is nearly as bad as everyone's making him out to be. I don't know that he's going to love a mile and a quarter. I think a mile and an eighth to a mile and three sixteenths. I think he's fully capable at that distance. He just needs to figure out what's going on mentally. Art Collector is, to me, the logical alternative. And you can even throw Honor AP in there. I've made my case that I, I was rather disappointed in that run and the, the shared belief. I expected more from him. Doesn't mean that he can't improve. Again, the Connections looked at that simply as a, a means to an end to get him ready for the Derby. So if you want to look at that and say, I'm not holding that against him, your prerogative. Outside of that, New York traffic doesn't do anything for me as far as the Derby goes. Thousand words. I need to see it again. I don't really entirely believe it. Uh, Dr. Post, I, I think he's a nice horse, but I don't think he's a superstar. Uh, Max Player, I don't think is good enough. Caracaro is interesting, but, I mean, can he really make up? What, what, what's the margin? Can he, can he make up seven lengths in the next three weeks? On Tis the Law, I just I, I don't want to gamble on it. I like Pneumatic. I don't know that he's really a derby type. I wonder if he's more of a Preakness kind of horse enforceable just feels like a bit of a plotter to me um i think he'll run five miles i just i don't know how quickly he'll do it and then you're left with swiss skydiver and you know when i look at that field i go boy doesn't doesn't she doesn't she sort of slot into the sort of the doesn't she slot into the new york traffic king guillermo thousand words sort of territory if you're looking at it from a gambling uh, perspective maybe heck maybe she's even ahead of authentic depending on what people think of him but to me at like at it feels like she's only really trailing from a gambling standpoint if i'm trying to sort of project forward what the odds could be come post time for the derby i i feel like she would only be behind tis the law art collector and honor ap and then she's probably in that next group with authentic king guillermo you know those those types which is saying something. I mean, she would theoretically be a top five choice for the Kentucky Derby. I don't know that she is good enough to run with a horse like Tis the Law. But then on the flip side, you take a look at the Oaks horses. And yes, she towers over them as far as 
per current points are concerned. But that doesn't really mean anything at this point. We know where all these girls stand and who's projected to go to the race. Speech feels like a horse who continues to improve. Bonnie South has points now. The distance is not going to be the thing that beats her. The problem is, do you see a scenario in the next three weeks where she makes up, you know, let, let's call it six to seven lengths on Swiss Skydiver? I don't. I, I thought last Saturday was going to be the opportunity for her. Uh, she dares the devil. I love she's she dares the devil. I've made that very clear over the past number of months. Um, but if I'm being straightforward, she needs to run the race of her life to even be close. If you're a speed figure player which I am, but I think there are other pieces that can be folded into it. Point blank, she's just miles slower right now on paper than a horse like Swiss Skydiver is. I think there's more to her than maybe the figures would suggest, but that's another story for another day. Uh, Venetian Harbor, I can't imagine the connections would go there. Tonal of Shape, never been a big fan of. Uh, Project Whiskey, fine, fine. Gamine, I mean, Gamine is the is the... The, the stick out in there because from a talent standpoint I think Gamine is I think Gamine is the most talented three-year-old filly that there is I brought up last week that I had my doubts about how far she really wants to go despite the pedigree despite the fact that it's Bob Baffert and you know x y and z but if you want to include let's just suggest a, a horse like Harvey's little Goyle gets in she's a little bit farther down the list Antoinette she won the Saratoga Oaks on, on Sunday. Maybe the Connections want to take a shot in the Kentucky Oaks because she has points. But just in that top sort of four to five range, you know, I don't I don't know that she's going to be a shorter price in the Oaks than she would be the Derby, no question about it. But is the Oaks that much of an easier spot than the Derby is? I'm not entirely convinced that, it, that that's the case. And for me at this point, it's it's more a matter of what race are you more likely to win. I guess you would have to say she's more likely to win the Kentucky Oaks because Gamine needs to prove that she can be that fast and that effective going nine furlongs. But I look at that boys group and I go, I, you know, outside of Tis the Law and maybe Art Collector. You know, I was disappointed with Honor AP. Art Collector handled her pretty easily in the bluegrass. But after that, I mean, doesn't she sort of slot into that that next tier? Let me know what you think, because I I'm I think it's I understand the logic. And Kenny McPeak even brought up the idea. Well, maybe we can run her in the Preakness. That would be fascinating. We want to try the Kentucky Oaks first, and then go that route. I'm not against that. I think that would actually be quite a quite a fun idea, because theoretically, well, boy, how 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 neat would that be though? If she wins the Kentucky Oaks, tis the law wins the Derby. Let's say they both do it very, very impressively, as they have in their big races up at Saratoga. And then they showcase. It's an absolute war in the Preakness between those two. That would be a fun story. Um, yeah, let me know what you think beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter, at Bernie or underscore Matt, because I, I just, I'm not convinced that the Derby field is a deeper group than the Oaks field is. And while I don't, th I think the horse to beat in the Derby is more talented than, at the mile and a quarter anyway, than what we have for the Oaks at a mile and an eighth, namely Tis the Law versus Gamine. I'm, I'm more concerned or afraid of Tis the Law than I am Gamine. I still think 
sort of that three through five group for the Oaks is probably as talented, if not more so, than the three through five group for the boys in the Derby. And I think Swiss Skydiver would honestly slot into either of those quite well. I was dubious about the distance with her at a mile and a quarter. She proved me to be wrong there in a major, major way in this grade one Alabama most recently. Let me know what your thoughts are because this is basically the field for both of those races. Uh, we've heard the jockey musical chairs that are going on with a number of the top riders not going from Cal- uh, New York to Kentucky. Um, I'm sure you will see more and more mounts be named and things like that, riding assignments, but... Uh, we're down to it. We are less than three weeks away from the Kentucky Oaks and the Kentucky Derby. So this is real nitty gritty time and get used to these names. Start doing your homework because more more likely than not, this is this is what you're going to be looking at there in those two races. Swiss Skydiver, I still wouldn't. I wonder if the connections will sit back and look at it a little bit more and say, maybe, maybe. I, because I don't even know if she'd be the favorite in the Oaks. Think about that. That would be the ultimate sign of sort of disrespect if Gamin went favored over her. Because Swiss Skydiver, all she's done is clean up the girls. She's just absolutely waxed them back and forth. And she acquitted herself quite well against the boys. We'll see what happens. I think it'll be a fun run over these next two, two and a half weeks. We'll see what some of these horses do training-wise leading in. There's always going to be that hot horse as far as training is concerned. Maybe it's going to be King Guillermo for the boys. For the girls, we'll find out who it is. Part of me hopes she dares the devil. Saw her workout with Monomoy Girl the other day, but neither here nor there. Let me know your thoughts beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Now, Friday feature time. My buddy Dante taking a look at the seventh from Saratoga this coming Friday. Short field. Let's see if we can smoke out a winner. Friday feature time for the 21st of August. Race number seven at Saratoga. Six and a half furlongs on the main track. These are open $40,000 claimers. No one picked the winner last week, and I'm not holding it against any of you because it was a 50-to-1 shot, so you need to flip a coin for that kind of thing to happen. But this guy has actually had success at Saratoga picking 50-to-1 shots, which is, we'll get into that. Uh, this is, he, how long have we known each other? This is Dante DeMeo. Uh, is it third grade or second grade? I think it was second grade, so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a minute. Well, who'd you have for your first grade teacher? First grade, I had Mrs. Uh, it was Miss Dowd. Now uh, it was Mrs. Sear. Then I had Mrs. Gale. So it might have been third grade. So third grade Balchunas. Yes. And then That's Herman right. fourth. Yep. And then fifth, I had Ryan and you had Hagen. Correct. So third. So when we were, what is that, like nine, ten? And now we're 31. So it's, it's been a minute. Um, we, we also grew up one street away from each other. He was the best man at my wedding last year. We've, we've got many, many memories. But I figured it was a good opportunity to bring on someone who I think you would admit you're not, you're not someone who is playing day in and day out. You play sometimes on a weekend or if there's something that, you, that I flag with you or I say, you know, I like this horse and maybe you'll get involved. But give everyone a little bit of background as far as what you actually do for your day-to-day job and things like that. Yeah, so I'd say, like, I don't play every weekend. I play on... Um the occasional big race weekend, or if I have nothing to do on a certain weekend, I'll, I'll reach out to you and say what what's happening. And I'll, I'll kind of go deep into it. Um, so I go in spurts, but day to day, I work for uh, the audio company Bose, um, do a lot of process analyst, process improvement type work, and uh, a lot of numbers and, and a lot of communication. 
and the that, numbers yeah. the numbers piece is actually interesting though because that's how it feels like it's sort of a, an easy transition for a lot of people not just people that have been on sort of guests with this piece so far but just in general a lot of people that are numbers oriented they can kind of pick up the racing thing relatively quickly because that's really all you're doing if you're looking at speed figures it's all about numbers and things like that yeah and that's why i do like going through these past performances because i am a numbers guy and this is right up right up that alley so let's go back to our first trip to saratoga now this ended up being this is going to be story time that's going to be what most of this segment is we'll dive into the seventh race in a bit but uh, the first year that we went, I'm trying to remember what year it actually was, but a Fleet Express won the Travers that year. Javier was aboard. Flydown was in the race. Uh, there was one other big-name horse in the race, but a Fleet Express won that first year that we went. And we went to every Travers from then on. I think I missed one, but then we changed a couple times. We went to the Whitney as opposed to the Travers when people's schedules got a little bit mixed up. But how how the hell did you end up smoking out well, let's start off with your biggest, to me, the biggest one was Golden Ticket. What uh, We were in the car on the way up from Western Massachusetts. We're listening to, is it 104.5, the local Saratoga ESPN channel, and they were talking about the odds as we were driving up, and you had mentioned Golden Ticket to me a few days earlier, and I said, absolutely no chance. <laughs> absolutely no chance, and I'll never forget, we always would watch the race at the rail. We would get there, put the bets in, we would get there probably like, you know, typically between the, the Travers and whether it was the Sword Dancer or whatever races prior, it'd be like 30 minutes, 35 minutes, and we'd be standing there right from the moment the race prior went final. And I'll never forget looking at the top of the lane as they turn for home in the Travers, and there's a horse with green, blue, and orange silks who scrapes paint. And you started smacking me, and I, I already knew. I was like, it's, it's effing golden ticket. And he ended up, unfortunately, dead heating. But how did the whole thing play out? Like, what is the, what was the, I don't even remember how you even landed on the horse. So if you think back to my early handicapping days, that was a long shot guy. So anything that showed big odds, that was right in my wheelhouse. So I don't remember exactly what golden tickets odds were, but given the big price, that's kind of what led me to him. And then I'd look at the PPs and just kind of find something that, I liked in there that would rationalize why I would pick that horse. And I don't remember what it was, obviously it was what, 10 years ago, Absolutely but um, it's been a minute. I think it was that long price that, that drew me to it. Well, and, and really that's what handicapping boils down to. It's a matter of finding something in the past performances or something in the breeding or something in whatever it may be workouts that, that you believe gives you reason to think that the horse is going to outrun whatever the odds are dictated by the public. And, whether this was sort of the thought process back then or not. And I mean, look, I'll, I'll admit that really, I was just kind of scratching the surface on looking at it from a probability standpoint and all that kind of stuff. But he was 35 to one, I think, or 33 to one, something along those lines. And looking at it now, what you just described is basically saying, you, you know, the public has given this horse a 3% chance to win this race. Realistically, he's probably much higher than that even if he was up into the 10 percent range you're all of a sudden you're looking at a single digit proposition a nine to one chance and you're getting a tremendous overlay so not only did you have golden ticket and you got a little bit jobbed when alpha ended up dead heating with him you had to chop your win price a little bit our pretty boy floyd freud our pretty boy freud yes because it was the son of freud paid 50 to one did that happen was that before golden ticket was it the same day no so they were Back-to-back -back years, and I 
Pretty Boy Freud or whatever his name was happened first. Yes. Happened in 2011. And then the following year was Golden Ticket in 2012. Correct. And the reason I know this is because when you asked me to come on last night, I went back into the archives of our fantasy football league. <laughs> yeah, it was your name. I used, I used to go and my big winners from Travers Weekend would be my fantasy football team name. So I went back into the into the archives of fantasy football and I looked up 2011 was pretty, my fantasy football team was pretty boy for 50 to one. And then the 2012 name was Golden Ticket. And to, to continue on with that, we've been in a fantasy football league with our high school and even middle school friends literally for you know the past 15 years. And there was a year, a few years back, where all day I had been saying, this horse is going to win the Travers. There's no two ways around it. We'll take charge. is going to win. For I don't want to say for fun, but he's going to win. And he's going to be a good price. And, you know, admittedly probably had a few too many cocktails. And it was time to make the bet. And I'm in line. And I'm going to make the biggest win bet of my life. I'm going to bet $100 to win. And we'll take charge. I didn't know this at the time. But I don't know if you did, but I know at least two or three of the other guys did. They had already bet on the horse. Someone comes up to me. I think it was Nick. I'm in line. They're getting close to the gate, and I still have like six people in front of me. And he goes, are you – we can't hold all these people off because typically for those of you – I mean most of you that listen and watch know Travers Day, you're rolling about 15, 20 deep from the rail all the way back. You can't see anything unless you're right up front or you're super tall. And these guys have been holding down the fort. And finally, somebody comes up to like, we can't hold this off anymore. I get out of line. He wins the race. I'm all pissed off. <laughs> and then we get back to the, the backyard where we had set up shop. And I did you have the horse? I did not, know. But like three of the other guys did. Everyone else did, yeah. And they're all just like rubbing it in my face. And that was that was probably the low point for me with, uh, <laughs> with our Travers Day trips and things of that nature. And the reason I bring that up is because that year... One of our other buddies, Chris, he ended up naming his team in fantasy football. We'll take charge just to really kind of stick it to me one more time. I so do remember that. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. We've had so many different things. I remember I had the year that Lady Eli returned uh, the horse that ended up defeating her. And the name is slipping my mind right now. I, I had just got done with uh, an NBC show. I bet 50 to win and 50 to place on her. She pays something silly. I tell these guys, they're like, you you know, you, you told Al Roker, but you didn't tell us about it. And I go, that's that's nonsense. I don't know Al Roker just because we're working with NBC doesn't mean I know those folks. But anyway, not to I digress. We, we've had so many different instances and so many different times. And then we have to talk about before we dive into the race, the time that you and I hit. And I get it. A lot of people that listen, they are not going to be fans of the fact that we played the Rainbow Six because of the high takeout and the jackpot wager and all that kind of stuff. But. There was a day at Gulfstream a number of years ago, it was before I moved down to New York City. I called you up, said, let's let's handicap this card, the six race sequence at the beginning of the day. You did your work, I did my work. We put $27 in each. It was a $54 ticket, and we hit for like nine grand. It was awesome. I was gonna say that was the biggest, biggest win of my uh, horse racing career. I always look back on that. That was great memories there. And I remember too calling you after the race was final. And with the Rainbow Six or any of those jackpot bets, they very rarely will show what the payoff is. And I remember calling you and saying, how much do you think? And you were like, 3000 And I said, no, more, higher. And you were like, oh, no. I said, 5000 no, higher. And you were just like going crazy. And it ended up being like eighty six or $8,700, something like that. But it's And that's to the point of 
you know, for the diehards and the folks that are really all in on, you know, looking at takeout and what's a smart wager versus one that's not. I understand the jackpot situation. And for those of us that play on a more frequent basis, it, it's not a great bet. There's no two ways around it on a day-to-day basis. But you can at least understand based on a story like this, where if it's someone who, or a group of people who they don't play a lot, they want to put a ton into it, you can still find that. And that's why I think there are still people that are attracted to that wager. So anyway. Story time. We've gone on for a bit. Let's talk about the seventh race here at Saratoga on Friday. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Again, six and a half furlongs on the main track. $40,000 claimers. If you want to be in Dante's position next Monday, you got to leave your selection beneath the video player on YouTube. I won't take it on Twitter. I won't take it in email. It's got to be beneath the video player. It's a small field. There's only seven entered. And the inside runner, Solitary Gem, is also cross-entered in a race on Wednesday. So theoretically, this race could end up scratching down to six. Uh, we don't know that at this point right now. From a handicapping standpoint, what's the first thing that you look at nowadays after playing for a few years or or knowing a little bit? How, how do you typically go through a race? So the two big things that I look at from my point of view, what have you done for me lately? And show me positive momentum. Okay. Those are the two things that I'm looking for when I kind of first take a kind of cruise through all of the horses. And when you say positive momentum, are you talking about sort of trending the right direction or are you talking about running style being forward? Specifically, I'm looking for your buyer figure is going up in the last three or four races. If you're trending down, then I'm kind of shying away. So I I like that positive momentum and and what have you done for me lately over those two lenses? And I think that's a a good way to be looking at it as well. We call them form cycles where, you know, is a horse trending the right direction or perhaps maybe we're a racer too too deep into this form cycle and they're going to start trending the wrong direction. Um, I'm curious, how much do you factor in the racetrack? Because in, if you use the daily racing form or you use other past performances, you can see up in that career box how the horses have run at any given racetrack. And in this race here on Friday, you have a couple examples of horses who they've done good things throughout their career. A horse like the number six, Kathy Naz, a horse like the number seven on the outside, Dovey Lovey. They're good racehorses, but their career record at Saratoga is a little bit lax or a little bit wanting. Is that enough to turn you off? Or do you still look at it and say, perhaps they're still trending the right direction, or maybe it's class relief, whatever it may be. Is that a make or break situation for you? It's not make or break, but I do factor that into the overall decision of whether or not I like the horse. So I'm, I went through, I made some notes, and a, a couple of these horses I have in red here, I have the comment, never won at Toga. Yeah. So I, I did consider that going through this list as just kind of another factor as I was saying yes or no in my mind if I like the horse. And from a handicapping sort of just, you know, call it your toolbox, things that you can use wherever the race is, whatever track it is, whatever the situation may be. That's something to keep in mind. Some horses will perform much better at certain tracks than others for whatever reason. It's no different than, you know, we play golf. Uh, speaking of that, what did you shoot tonight in your league? 49. Any? Okay. I mean, look, that's it, a step in the right direction. You said you were in the wilderness last week. But ready? Par, 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 triple, 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 double, par, double. So, yeah, <laughs> that's tough. That That's tough. Can't, can't really sugarcoat that, but... Again, considering you, you felt like you were in the wilderness there for a little bit, at least trending in the right direction. Um, but it's really no positive, different. Positive momentum. Positive momentum, exactly. And it's no different than, than with golf. If you're someone who there's certain courses that just fit your eye, 
some some horses they just like certain tracks compared to others for whatever reason it may be and to that point there is a horse in here who is quite fond of the Saratoga main track that's the number three jump for joy Jose Ortiz retains the mountain he has ridden this horse in each of the past two starts uh, a victory in a narrowly defeated second two starts back but from four lifetime starts on the main track at Saratoga two victories in a third and a second place finish uh, what are your overall feelings about this seven-year-old mare because when I went through this race from a pace standpoint, there really isn't a heck of a lot. This is a horse who doesn't have to have the lead, but will be forwardly placed, enters with the highest last out buyer in the field, and has an affinity for the track. What was your sort of read on Jump for Joy? So he was, he, she, she, <laughs> she was my choice for in this race as I was going through it with those two filters of, like I said, what have you done for me lately and that positive momentum. This was the only horse that, even was close to fulfilling both those criteria for me. I mean, look at the, the buyer's been going up Yep. past three races. I looked at that Saratoga, that two out of four, 50% win percentage there. Um, I know we had talked in the past about Ortiz won at Saratoga on this horse, the last race, and he's riding the horse again. That's another sign that I kind of look at there. So all of those things and the fact that this horse is already at Saratoga, I don't know if that means something, but it's not coming from a different track up. So in my mind, it's like it's comfortable there one last time out there. Um, so considering all of that and what was the other horses were looking like, this was the horse that I had picked. Yeah, it, and as far as that most recent start goes, uh, you know, as far as the trip was concerned, really worked out a nice sort of situation. The pace was a little bit swifter in those interior fractions, but sat about two, three wide throughout pressing the pace. Jose really rode her with with uh, extreme confidence, and when he pushed on her a little bit, it's not as though she blew the doors off the field, but I thought it was a pretty comfortable margin of victory. You get a little bit of added ground to work with on Friday afternoon. I, I don't think that extra half furlong compared to the six furlongs last time out is really going to be a tremendous difference maker. The question is, and a lot of people are going to look at it and say she's going from $32,000 claimers up to open $40,000 claimers, and this will be her third consecutive race moving up the class ladder, the thing I would sort of go back the other way with anybody that's concerned about the class situation, um, and again, this is for those of you that are doing the deeper dive, uh, the runner-up and the third-place finisher coming out of that most recent run on July the 18th, the runner-up came back and earned an 80 buyer in her next start. The third-place finisher was the next out winner with a 79 buyer. So there, there's an argument to be made that although she is moving up from the open 32 level to the open 40 level, She's actually been taking on better horses than the sort of bulk of this field has. And some of these girls are dropping in class where if you're someone who just looks at the condition of the race, it's going to be difficult for you to really, you know, garner any kind of true opinion on what kind of competition have they been facing until you go through and you see what some of these horses have exited these races to do. A horse that I was really, I had a very difficult time figuring out what I wanted to do with her was the number five flat awesome Jenny. Now, Flat Awesome Jenny is coming out of the grade three Molly pitcher at Monmouth Park. She's trained by Kelly Breen. Kelly Breen is a trainer who obviously has run horses at Saratoga in the past, but the vast majority of the string is down in New Jersey at Monmouth Park. Could have very easily found a race that this mare would fit in down there, theoretically, unless the condition book just was completely stymied. They show up upstate in for 40. I... I kept going back to that three-race stretch that she had from December to February down at Gulfstream, going six, six-and-a-half furlongs, where she rattled all three straight wins. I get it. Maybe it was against inferior company, but 
she's at least intriguing enough to me underneath. I don't know if she can win because the pace situation, I think, could compromise her. She doesn't have a lot of early speed. But she was one that I was just, I was interested enough in. I don't know if she can win, but maybe she's one you want to use in second or third if you're going to play an exacto or a trifecta. Yeah, and some, some of those things that you touched on. So going back to whenever it was, at the earlier this calendar year, end of the last calendar year, yep. those wins there obviously jumped out to me. But then, like I said, in my mind, that was almost seven months ago. So yep. that's, for me, that's outside the window where I'm, I'm saying you've trended from a buyer perspective, 77, 71, 45. You got smoked by the big boys at the, in the G3. And then you're going to come and you're going to be discouraged from that. And then you're coming into this race just af- absolutely getting trounced. Finishing loop by 36 furlongs, 36 and a quarter furlongs. Lengths. Lengths. <laughs> 36 and a quarter lengths getting smoked. So you're going to come into this one discouraged. So uh, a furlong just for going forward, a furlong is an eighth of a mile. Awesome. So she lost by 36 <laughs> furlongs. I mean, she's she's probably still running in that race. Um, but to your point, there is something about horses while they may end up being as good as some of the shorter prices and the more logical runners, there is something to be said. They're, they're no different than human athletes. Where you, you can lose your confidence a little bit if you get absolutely waxed against better. And, I mean, it's the reason that you see certain baseball players can handle the move from single A to double A and double A to triple A or triple A to the majors, and some can't. Uh, the same with amateur golfers. Some can handle one level, but they can't cut it at the next. It really, it's like that with any kind of sports. And the horses are really no different. And we see it even with riders, too. We're riders on the big stage that when they're not accustomed to being, you know, in the midst of the spotlight, that can be a little bit of an overwhelming situation. So your point is well taken that she got waxed in that most recent run in the Molly Pitcher. She is facing much, much softer company this time around. But, you know, with the Rad Ortiz Jr. aboard, she can't help but take some money. And that's another piece that, that we can talk about here. Do you, how much do you look at a rider as someone who is not, uh, you know, again, a diehard or someone who plays day in and day out? Somebody like me, the rider, eh, not not the end of the world. Some riders are better at certain things than others. But as someone who, let's say you are much more of a casual fan, are you enticed when you see the leading rider, the Ortiz, whichever brother it is on a horse? Does that make a difference to you? Only if... And I remember talking to you about this while ago and you told me that the jockey has the choice if they won to stay on that horse or something like that. So look, going back to jump for joy, I saw that Ortiz rode this horse and won last time out. He's staying on this horse again versus he could, if he went somewhere else, well, that could be a red flag. So that's what I look at from, a, from the rider perspective is were they on this horse before and did they win and did they choose to stay on that horse? Yeah, and, and to that point, the number two horse, Lady by Choice, in her most recent start, uh, she was a well-beaten fifth. Jose Ortiz rode that day. He stays aboard the three, again, for a number of reasons, not only because she's in good form, but from a tactical standpoint, she's going to get the jump on the number two horse, and overall, she's probably just a better horse at this point. So you kind of tipped your hand a little bit, and I'm with you. I, I'm going with the number three jump for joy as well. This will be one of the rare weeks that I throw a pick in as far as this race is concerned. It, it's... I guess the real crux is she's going to be the favorite. And while she has a major tactical advantage and she's in great form right now, I I don't know how short a price I would want to go. Now, you being a numbers guy, and we talk about, you know, betting on all sorts of different sports. You're a big UMass guy, UMass basketball and, and things like that. 
I get that it's not an apples to apples comparison because betting on sports is different than having you know seven props that you can be betting on. But like, do you have a certain threshold? You made it clear early on when we would go up to the track, you were looking for the 25, 30, 40, 50 to one shots. I mean, do you have a set number that you would look at it and say, I just, I can't bet her. I don't want, I don't want any part of her if she's, I'm making it up six to five. So here's what's interesting about this. I've never handicapped a race this far in advance where it doesn't give you the morning line odds while going through. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed myself do it in the past to the point of me liking that longer shot. If I see a morning light on, that's a six to one or a seven to one. And I'm going back and forth between a two to one and a seven to one. I'm going to find those things in the seven to one that makes me want to go with the seven to one or the longer shot where this was an actually a good exercise to go through the race without knowing anything about potentially what the odds could be and coming up with this jump for joy. Um, horse. So to answer your question about the odds, if this horse was going to be anything less than three to one, I probably would just wouldn't bet it. And that's, I'm just completely making that number up. Sure. But um, it was a great exercise to go through without even knowing the odds and just picking the horse that I like, and then waiting to see kind of what the actual odds end up being. So if I'm going to throw a number out there, I'll probably say three to one. And I have no idea if that's close or if that's completely not even feasible, but that's probably what I'd go with. And I think it's an important thing to bring up too, because there have been other people that have brought it up to me when they they can allow themselves to be influenced by the morning line for better or for worse, and and that's one of those things that if you play on a much more regular basis, you know you're you're better off trying to. And I get it; it's very difficult to do, but ignore the the noise and, and try to just sort of lock in and say. I think this horse fits, this one doesn't. But more importantly, what do I think realistically the price is going to be? Now, fortunately for for a jurisdiction like New York, uh, David Aragona, who works for the Daily Racing Forum, does a great job with the morning lines. It's it's very, very accurate. But that still is one thing that I would encourage anyone that's listening or, or watching to consider doing. If you use a product like Formulator, or you use one of these other products where you can toggle things on and off, go through a race without any morning line. And see ultimately where you land and assign what you think fair odds would be, what you would be willing to gamble on. I talk about a value line all the time. Even if you don't want to go through and assign odds and percentages for all of the horses in the race, at least have, I I hate to call it a gut feel, but but go with your instinct and say, you know what? So you brought up three to one. If three to one's the number that you're comfortable and you're confident in and the horse for whatever reason goes off shorter, if I'm being honest, I think she's probably going to be in that sort of 8-5, to 9-5 to five range. But if you are not comfortable gambling on that, the beautiful thing is there's another race in 20 minutes. Right. Just pass on it. You don't have to play every race unless you are someone going to the track and you're having fun. Like like we always used to do where it was, you know, you've got only, there's only 11 races today. Only 11. Fire away, have a little something on all of them. A little action here and there. But I'm with you on Jump for Joy. I think from a tactical standpoint, there's really not a ton of speed in this race. Like I said, I was mildly intrigued with Flat Awesome Jenny, but I just, the turn back in distance, I, I I don't know if it's going to be to her benefit or not because they've been keeping her at these longer distances. Uh, she won two starts back going two turns down at Delaware Park going a mile against non-winners of two other than, but that field was kind of suspect when you take a look at some of the figures that came out of that. You've got a couple of horses that came back and earned mid-60 buyers. That's simply put, not going to be fast enough to get it done in a spot like this. Outside of those two horses, they're really... I did think Solitary Gem was one other horse that we'll talk about, and she's the one 
that is cross-centered on Wednesday. So keep in keep that in mind. She may or may not go in this spot. If you're trying to play in the contest, be aware that she may not actually go on Friday. But And this is something sort of that we can file away for your own toolbox as well. She is owned and trained by Leah Giamatti. Leah Giamatti does a great job conditioning the horses. You take a look. She was claimed out of her most recent start for $20,000 from Linda Rice's barn. Go back to the run on February 8th of 2020 when she ran in a $25,000 non-winners of three lifetime race. She was claimed out of that race, and look who she was claimed from. She was claimed from Leah Giamatti, who was the trainer and the owner of record. So Leah thought enough to dip back in when she had an opportunity to claim this horse back for 20000 That's typically a positive thing. They're not going to, folks aren't going to, they're not going to claim a horse if they don't think the horse can run or, or whatever the case may be. So the fact that Leah is willing to dip back in, now this horse moves up in class to the open 40. I think she's in a little bit tough in a spot like this if they do cho- choose to run here. Um, frankly, I haven't looked and seen what the race looks like on Wednesday that she's cross-centered in, but that's always a positive sort of, it's a pet angle of mine. The claim back, if the, if the connections lost the horse, and then they're willing to go back and get the horse back. Clearly, there's got to be some some rhyme to the reason. There's, there's got to be a reason that they want to go and obtain this horse again and have them in their care. So long story short, you and I are both on the number three jump for joy in here. Is there anyone else that you would consider it or thought about? Well, I can I ask you a question about that whole claiming? Yeah. Or maybe for my toolbox and some other listeners who are listening. Sure. Um, so I looked at that. And I, I looked at it actually as, so this horse ran, got claimed, mm-hmm. and then the next race out is another claiming race. If the trainer truly thought this horse was something, did they, would they have the option to run it in a non-claiming race? Because is it my understanding correct where a claiming race, someone can go and then purchase this horse for the $40,000? Correct. So if they thought this horse was truly something special, why would they then run it in a claiming race versus running it in a different race that the horse couldn't be claimed and then they can keep it in their barn? Well, I think so. It's all kind of relative where as a five-year-old mare uh, at face value, she's relatively modestly bred. It's not like you're really looking at her as a, as a brood mare prospect, but I think it is a situation where the connections probably look at it and say, we can still make money with her and she can still be an effective racehorse. And if you go up in class, so let's put it this way. You can't claim a horse and then necessarily just cut bait and drop them in for five. You want you, They're going to end up either at the same level or slightly above. This horse goes up to the 40 level from the 20 level. So realistically, it, it seems highly unlikely that someone is, is going to be dipping in for $40,000 to take this horse after a, a solid second, but, but far from a spectacular second place finish. But... From Leo Giamatti's standpoint and anybody else that's involved with this horse, if someone were so inclined to dip in and take the horse for 40, you effectively doubled up your money, and that's not even including how the race plays out. So strictly from a a sort of business standpoint, it, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if somebody wanted to dip in and take this horse for 40 because if we're being honest, it's probably a little bit of a, a difficult position for this one to be in. This horse has never been a prolific winner four for 28 lifetime, likes to nibble a little bit more 13 times second or third. So this this level may be a little bit difficult for her. I'm sure the connections will look at it and say, if she goes in this race on Friday, if they can get a piece, they'll be happy. They'll collect a check. Maybe next time out, they drop her back sort of the $30,000 level somewhere around there. And if she runs well and she gets claimed, 
not the end of the world because then there's still going to be that opportunity perhaps going forward where her new connections will drop her back into a level that they'll be content trying to take a shot with. So it's not necessarily that they, oh, well, you know, they thought they were going to get a, a graded stakes type runner out of it. It's just if you think about it from a day-to-day business standpoint, these are kind of the bread and butter of the industry because the the sexy horses that are running in the grade ones and the grade twos and those types, they're realistically, they're kind of few and far between. More likely than not, you're going to have these horses that are the blue-collar lunch pail types that show up, they do their job, they like to run in the afternoons, they like to train in the morning, they may not be superstars, but they still can fit and they can still run competitively in certain races. So it's a good catch by you. And another one briefly that I can bring up that I found interesting uh, as far as the class move is concerned, uh, Flat Awesome Jenny, I brought up that she's coming out of a stakes race. We actually have a stakes winner in this field and she's in for $40,000. That's the four I'll take the cake who two starts back won a stakes race down at Gulfstream Park. Now, I, I think part of the breeding situation has gone sideways, but the point is, if you're a stakes winner as a mayor, somebody is willing is going to breed to you. And if you are already in full to a whomever the stallion is, all of a sudden, the, the, inherently, the value of that mare and foal goes up. So for them to be willing to drop her in for $40,000, again, another one who looks modestly bred on paper, it's still an interesting move. So if you're someone who is in the breeding business, and perhaps these owners, this ownership group is not in the breeding business, but if you're someone who is in the breeding business and you see this mare in for $40,000, she's no superstar by any stretch, but... She is a stakes winner, and a lot of breeders take that into consideration. They think that's a positive sign. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if she is claimed out of this race for 40000 whether she ends up being anything anymore on the racetrack or not. That's another story, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if someone did claim her and try to turn her into a broodmare and hope that you know you can you can get something out of her. I found that to be a little bit interesting that she's in for the, for the $40,000 tag. So um, anything else that we should touch on before we wrap things up here Dan. so for i'll take the cake i mm-hmm. just looked at like at the the 47 lifetime runs like i just kind of looked at that as a little bit this horse might be kind of on the end of end of its journey so that i had i had that one as kind of the knock against i'll take the cake there um but as far as the, the horses i like it was jump for joy flowers and jenny mm-hmm. and then kathy naz the one stat on there that jumped off the page to me, you know, I say that right, Kathy. Nass? Yeah. 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 Um, that jockey trainer combo at Saratoga, the 32% win rate out of 22 races. Yeah. To me that with a 2.279 ROI, like to me, that's good. And that's, I don't think we should look past that as, 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 I think that should be could be an angle that you could potentially want to play. I mean, if, if Luis Saez is taking them out, and like you say, Saez and Jimmy Bond, they typically team up and they end up striking with horses that, uh, on paper anyway, you can get a little bit of value out of as opposed to sort of your, your overwhelming favorites. I think she's a nice little mare. I think the 0 for 3 at Saratoga concerned me a little bit. From a class standpoint, she's going from the state-bred N2X level to the open 40 you know, say what you will about that move. But the big thing for me is her first start since the beginning of January. And throughout her career, I know she has actually won off of a bit of a layoff in the past, but it came on a sloppy track. And clearly, if you take a look at her overall record, she's run 19 times, three times a winner. 
But if you look at just to the right, she's one for 15 on a fast track and she's two for four on a wet track. I I think she's the kind of horse that needs a race under her belt to really to really be able to prove herself at this kind of level against horses that are in the form that these ones are. Um, so that was part of the reason that I cited against. But having said that, you're probably looking at a horse that's going to be somewhere in the, if I had to ballpark it, 7-1 to one range, 8-1 to one range. And she has races on her page that are certainly good enough to win in here. So she's one from a value standpoint. I think she could check a box if you were so inclined to go against a horse like Jump for Joy. And here's where maybe historically, if this had the morning lines on here, I may have, for whatever reason, found things on this horse that I liked even more than that 32% with the jockey trainer combo and then went with this horse. But looking at it without these morning lines, I would never choose that horse. I just thought that stat jumped off the page. Um, so this, like I said, doing this exercise was, was kind of eye-opening for me to, to make sure that I don't, or don't persuade myself just based off that morning line. And, and you're not alone. A lot of people do get swayed by that, and it would be the it would be one of the top things that I would suggest to folks is is if you print your past performances or you look at them with the morning line, just just take a marker and and black it out so you can't see it, and then go through the race and set it up, design it where you think everyone's going to be positioned, what you think odds are going to be, X, Y, and Z, and let that dictate your opinion as opposed to what as good as the morning line is from David Aragona. Try not to let that sway you one way or the other. So I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from what we've chatted about with this race going forward is don't let someone else's, and, and again, I, I can't overstate it. David does as good a job as anyone as far as the morning line goes, but don't let someone else's opinion of what the public is going to ultimately make these horses, don't let that sway you one way or the other. Go through, make your selection, and then determine personally what you think a fair number is to in order to play or not play any given horse. So, Dante DeMeo, my buddy, thank you for pinch hitting here. Thank you for filling in in a bit of an odd and fun week. Your official selection is the three, Jump for Joy? Yes, Jump for Joy. She is officially my selection as well. Hopefully she works out a trip where, again, there's not a lot of speed in this race. Wouldn't surprise me at all if Jose put her right on the front, but I like that she has shown that she doesn't have to have the lead, that she can sit off of a target. But if it's not her, I don't really know who's going to make the front in a spot like this. Um, where can people follow you on Twitter? What's your handle? My handle is Dan Mayo. It's straight away Dan Mayo. There's no no underscore or anything. Uh, Dan underscore Mayo. Okay, time. we got to make sure that that's that's 100 percent because there'd be some other Dan Mayo that people are looking at, and it's M A I O yes. after the underscore. If you want to know about UMass basketball, I was follow. Gonna say, if you follow me, you'll probably get the occasional tweet about UMass basketball, and then the occasional like on one of Matt's tweets. Other than that, I don't. <laughs> stuff, but give me the follow. I'll keep you updated on college hoops and UMass basketball. Now, and that's assuming they get to play this year. Is the team give me give me a very early outlook on UMass basketball? Boy, they were trending in the right direction at the end of last season. A couple uh, guys, or they had one of their freshmen last year were, was injured for the majority of the season, and so he redshirted the year and he's back this year. So they have Trey Mitchell who. Also, is supposed he was eight ten rookie of the year last year, um, so supposed to be pretty good this year. But we'll see what happens with uh, this whole COVID situation and if they even end up playing. We went and watched them at Mohegan Sun last year when they played Virginia, and it was they they couldn't hit the broadside of the barn in the first half, and it was still only like a four point game. And the, and me and your brother had money all over the place on UMass, and in the second half they just laid an egg i got a backdoor cover out of it though i think 
if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, you did. Yeah, so uh, hopefully this year, hopefully they get to play, knock on wood, if everything goes uh, well going forward anyway, and, and they can make a little bit of a move. Dante DeMeo, thank you again, buddy. Uh, appreciate you hopping on, and yeah. hopefully we'll do this again at some point soon. Yeah, if no one uh, picks the winner, let me know, and I'll just be your, <laughs> your pill guy for uh, when no one picks that winner. We'll call, call the bullpen. We'll get Dante out of there. I like it. All right, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, man. I'll talk to you later. Hope you all enjoyed this week's Friday feature. Thought it was just a nice time or an opportunity to to depart a little bit from what we've been doing over the past few weeks. But again, this segment has been a, a very pleasant surprise. I've been happy with the sort of interaction and the amount of people that seem to be enjoying it. And the only way it works is if all of you, the listeners and the viewers, get involved. If you want to be involved, next Monday's show for the Friday feature, you need to leave your selection for Saratoga 7th beneath the video player on YouTube. Uh, let's dive into a Q&A segment that is long overdue. It's been a few weeks since I've done one of these. Uh, I'm going to start with the direct message I got earlier today. This is being recorded on Monday. And then I'll go through the last three episodes of the pod and go through. And I've, I've picked out a few questions and comments and things that I can just sort of dive into. So uh, as always, if you have questions, comments, concerns, beneath the video player on YouTube is your best bet. But you can also send them over to me on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. It just more often than not gets lost in the shuffle. The best place or the place that we can more or less guarantee I will see is beneath the video player on YouTube. So let's dive into the DM on Twitter. This is from Mike B. He is at BigBeast1212. Uh, here is the message. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Big fan of the podcast with the In The Money Media. Really enjoy your thoughts and commentary. Thank you. Uh, was hoping to pick your brain on a derby wager. I've got Art Collector at 250 to 1 in a futures bet for a sizable score if he can take down the beast. I'm just curious on your thoughts about hedging and how you'd attack it with Tis the Law being a dominant favorite. Looking forward to hear your thoughts. Mike B., thank you for the nice comments and, and thoughts there, and, and thank you for listening and watching. Um, this is an interesting position because I'm in something that is not nearly to this size, but I'm in a similar situation with the Kentucky Oaks, and this is knock on wood. Hope that Art Collector gets there for you and you at least have an opportunity on Derby Day and She Dares the Devil gets there for me and I at least have an opportunity on Oaks Day. Now again, my stakes, I don't, I have no idea how much you wagered. Um, I can, I can be transparent with everyone here. I have a 33 to 1 future ticket on She Dares the Devil for a little bit of money and to the point where, you know, I get a decent little return. More than 100 bucks, let's put it that way. I'm of the opinion that unless it is a very crystal clear hedge sort of situation and it's not going to cost you a million dollars to try to hedge it, you know, uh, more often than not. So uh, let me let me rephrase it and, and kind of backtrack a bit. The only time I've ever hedged anything major was in the Aqueduct contest back in 2014 that I won. We're going into the last race. I had my bet and my my sort of, it was a double bet back in the day when we had those sort of contests with Naira, the mythical money. And uh, Collins Nightingale was the name of the horse up at Woodbine. I already knew that was in there. And if the horse wins, I win. But there were two or three other horses who, I believe the favorite in the race was something like three or four to one. There were two or three other horses who I thought realistically could win. And uh, some of the folks that I would happen to be there with or were sort of in and around me during this entire thing uh, happened to be from the Horse Players Show. Lee Davis was there. Um, 
Kevin Cox was there. And Kevin was the one who specifically, I said, you know, what do you think at this, in this kind of situation? Because he won, he had won the Belmont contest uh, a year or two prior. And he said, take a look at those. If, if you really have narrowed it down to, let's say, four or five horses, bet what, whatever money you're comfortable on, on those other, whatever you consider to be logical kind of options. Enough that you're going to get a little something back if they win. And on top of that, you're going to probably run second or third in this contest and you'll just take that, whatever it is. So I didn't, and he goes, the rest of them, realistically, you're not, if you don't really think that there's a big chance of them winning, then there's no real sense in putting any kind of wicked money on them. So I had a a few hundred dollars on a couple other horses just in case where I would be able to get a little something extra back in case they were to win. And worst case scenario, the way that I looked at it was if I were to win, just deduct a few hundred dollars from whatever the total was. It was 40000 for that contest. If I ran second, I think second was like twelve five or something like that. Even still, twelve five deduct whatever those losses are, and perhaps you end up catching one of those other horses, and you can make a few grand back on that as well. So in your position, I don't know just how much you have possibly on the line. The problem is, realistically, Tis the Law is going to be somewhere. It's A lot's going to depend on how he looks going into the race, but damn if it doesn't look like he's going to be four to five in the Kentucky Derby, which which is wild to think about. But that's where we are, given that we have seen more of this animal as opposed to what we typically see early on in May. There's still a lot of question marks, a lot of unknowns. We know that Tis the Law is fast, he's handy, and he can handle a mile and a quarter pretty damn well. So you're in a really difficult position because the amount of money that you would need to be betting on a horse like Tis the Law is pretty astronomical, if we're being honest. So I... Again, let, let's let's assume for bare bones, easy numbers to use. Let's say you have one hundred dollars bet on this horse. He's two hundred fifty to one. I'm gonna venture a guess. Maybe you've got a bunch of funny money laying around, but the amount of money you would need to bet, and let's just say Tis the Law goes off at even money, the amount that you would need to bet on that horse to just take a dent out of that is huge and if he doesn't win and your horse wins you'd just be cutting in tremendously into whatever you'd be making so in my opinion i don't think you should make any sort of a play as far as hedging on the win side is concerned if you want to sit there and tell me and again let's let's use the you know what maybe even 100 is too big because i don't know how much people like their bet on on futures maybe i just tip my hand on how much i have as far as my future bet goes i let's say you have ten dollars on this horse at 251 so if Art Collector wins, you you, you net out you know twenty five hundred bucks. I'd be more inclined to look at it and say if if you think Tis the Law is really the only threat to Art Collector, I would be more inclined to say hit a pretty heavy exacta of Tis the Law over Art Collector, where if your horse runs and I think he is the the major threat if there is one to Tis the Law, I think Art Collector fits. If you bet, let's say, a hundred dollar exacta of Tis the Law in first, Art Collector in second. That to me is a, a fair play. Let's say it comes I'm making it up. I you know, off the top of my head, given that they'll probably be the top two choices, you're probably looking at an exacta around, I don't know, six, seven, eight bucks for a deuce. Maybe it's more than that, but I mean I think we're probably looking at a shorter field than twenty which surprised me because months and months ago, I, I mean, if you had told me there would only be 14 or 15 horses in the Derby starting gate, I would have been floored. I would have said you were crazy. 
um, let's let's just let's say it's let's even say 10 10 bucks for a deuce and you've got that 50 times you know it, it's better than a stick in the eye um, I just I don't think you really gain anything by by betting tis the law to win because the amount that you would need to bet to really put any kind of a dent into that potential score that you would have had with Art Collector, I think you're just kind of chasing at that point, and you're potentially cutting into whatever profits you would be getting if Art Collector were to win the race. So my advice, and I'm curious, I'm not an expert on hedging by any stretch because I don't do it very often. More often than not, it's just kind of like, all right, well, whatever happens, happens, and let's just, you know, fingers crossed. I would be curious what other folks have to say. Let me let us know beneath the video player on YouTube. Um, but that would be my my suggestion. Again, not knowing how much you have on this horse, Art Collector at 250 to 1, but I would strongly encourage you playing a very heavy, cold exacta of Tis the Law over Art Collector. Or if you want to try to do something else, I hate that they did away with the dollar minimum on the Superfecta. I think that was just a, 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 a stupid, stupid move. Um, but if, if you want to get crazy and play some sort of a try, that's up to you. I wouldn't do that. I would just keep it simple and say... Tis the law over art collector for, you know, again, $100 or, or whatever it is. And if it comes in cold, you know, you, you're going to make out with a little bit of something there that you wouldn't have had before. That's my advice. Mike B, again, at BigBeast1212 on Twitter. I hope that answers it. And again, I, really, I'm being serious. I, this is far from my expert area. So anybody that has any other suggestions for Mike, beneath the video player on YouTube. Now, let's go back to episode 25 where someone uh, beneath the video player, uh, Jared uh, Schlerdorn, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Jared, question for the pod. The cross-country pick five paid over, uh, just paid over $13,000, which I would have had if I spent $720 on the, on the wager. Hindsight says I made the wrong decision going cheap and not betting it, but was it a smart bet putting that much into it? Love the show, keep up the great work, thanks. Jared, thank you for listening, thank you for watching. Uh, to me, the only way to answer that question is what are you? What are your means? I mean, if you're someone who makes gobs and gobs of money and $720 for you is a drop in the bucket, then I would probably say, yeah, you, you probably cheaped out. Realistically, how many people can sit there and say $720 is a drop in the bucket for them? Realistically, and I, I, there are probably more people that would say that they can't afford that when they realistically can't. For being honest, I mean, I, I've never played a $700 ticket in my life. The most I've ever played, and I'm not ashamed to, to say this, uh, given the, the way that it played out. There was a pick five carryover at Del Mar or Santa Anita a number of years ago when I was still living in New York. And I was on a, an Amtrak train back to the city from Massachusetts. And I played a $420 uh, set of tickets and the pick five returned I believe $700 so I mean had to do had to put a lot out there to get what four to five on my money three to five on my money not the most efficient wager in the world but the point is typically if I'm gonna play and it, I mean I, I I don't play multi-race bets very often. I don't play many of the exotics very often simply because they're, they're low probability results. And I'm the, I, I say it time and time again, I don't bet a ton of money. I really don't in the grand scheme of things compared to other people that maybe you see on TV or whatever the case may be. 
But if I'm really feeling it and I want to go after a, a pick five or a pick four or a pick six, you know, if there's a big carryover or something like that, maybe I'll get crazy and throw two, maybe $300 at it. But that's few and far between. Typically, if, if you're, you know, looking at a Saturday card and it's a pick five, you know, I'll throw 60 bucks at it, $72. But again, I don't play them very often because they are very low probability results because you need so many things to happen. I typically stick to win and, and daily double plays. Daily double, linking up two races. But to your point, Jared, or your question, if $720 for you is a drop in the bucket, then yeah, you probably made an error in not playing that ticket that paid just over 13000 If a big ticket for you is $100 or $200, no, you didn't. You didn't make a bad play. It would have been irresponsible for you to be doing that. You only. You should only be betting and gambling with money that you can afford to gamble and bet and lose. Go into it with the assumption, and I know some people are going to look at it and say that's a loser's mentality. It's not. It's being real. Only bet money that you can afford to lose and you expect to lose. And when I say expect to lose, it's not that you're going into it saying, "Oh, this is a losing wager." It's that, in all likelihood, it's going to lose. So be smart about things. And that's I, I've always tried to maintain the idea, and, and there have been a number of other people who are smarter and better gamblers and handicappers than I am that have said the same sort of things. The idea, the, the general idea should be to bet a little to win a lot as opposed to bet a lot to win a little. So we hear this story from this whole Del Mar thing with the pick six. I have no idea what the hell's going on. But it, it's asinine. If, if, if I don't know, I'm not getting into the weeds. I don't know what's what with any of this stuff. But to bet sixty-five grand to win over three hundred thousand again sounds sweet. You got what five to one on your money, roughly. Who in their right mind can afford to bet sixty-five grand just on a whim? And I get it. There's more details there that I'm not getting into because I don't know all the details. It doesn't do me any good to speculate. But point is. I would try to stick to the idea of stay well within your means. If a $1,000 bet for you on any given day isn't going to cripple you, isn't going to hurt you at all, then yeah, probably probably made a bit of an error. If a $720 ticket that you're suggesting you were going to play is you know your, your bankroll for the month or for two months or whatever it may be, then no, it was not a bad play. Sit that one out and you look back and you say, you know what, good handicapping, good job. I would always encourage you, though, to pare that down and say, realistically, did I, did I, would I have connected in one of the legs with my seventh choice? Because then, you know, I mean, you got to get lucky in these things, too. But that's my two cents, anyway, for a situation like that. Uh, another question. Let's see. Which way am I going here? How about we go... Let's go right here. Kent Bogue, or Bo. B-O-G-H, from that same pod, episode 25, uh, when I was talking about maximum security. Uh, this is what makes sense, Matt. All Max has to do is win. He is a special horse with a lot of heart and a real win to, will to win. If he would win the Pacific Classic and go on to win the Breeders' Cup Classic, he still won't get the credit he deserves from the haters and a big portion of the press slash experts. But the Breeders will see the undeniable and be in line at the shed. To Cal McDonald, who was uh, also on board with this, right on, go Max, go. Uh, Kent, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I think you're misinterpreting what I was saying in that. The horse has heart. No question. You can't deny the horse's will to win. 
I'm not going to go back into all the, the reasoning, but the bigger piece that I would caution with your statement there, he is a very, I would, I, I'm going to be kind and say modestly bred racehorse. Breeders are going to, they'll fawn all over him. Someone will stand him. I, w- I will make a, I'm going to say this as kindly as I can. My expectation for him as a sire is very, very low because of his pedigree. There's only so much. We see horses outrun their pedigree all the time. They don't then transfer that on. I would I would strongly encourage you to go through and look at some of the better racehorses we've seen and given their pedigree. The, one, the most fascinating case for the next little while, and we won't really get to see here in the States, is going to be California Chrome. Because I, I have no idea, or maybe we will. Is he back here? I don't even know because he was all over the place. California Chrome is bred to be a five furlong turf sprinter. And he outran that because he had the heart and he had the build. He was just a freak of nature in the best way possible. But if you're betting on getting that from him, from a horse that is is sired by him, I think you are making a just a, a terrible, terrible business decision because the likelihood of him eclipsing all of his pedigree is so so astronomically small the the chances of that I, and i feel the same way with maximum security he's a very modestly bred racehorse he's he is not a blue he's not a blue blood he's not he's not a, a you know a horse like um like honor code who you saw him he's got the pedigree he's got the look he has it all you knew he was very likely to end up being a very good stallion. He's off to a great start. I'm not trying to be mean, but New Year's Day is not, you know, people aren't chomping at the bit to go and, you know, we get it. We don't even know what New Year's Day really is as a sire. Mainly because he only ran, what, twice in his career? I would just caution that piece there of what you're saying. I'm not arguing his heart and his will to win. He is a, he's a fighter if there ever was a fighter on the racetrack. But, ooh, buddy. I don't think it's necessarily he he will get some sort of a stallion deal. No no two ways around it. I would I would be very, very concerned that he does not pass on that sort of tenacity to his offspring. And even if he does, based on the bloodlines, I wouldn't expect all of a sudden you're gonna get a bunch of little maximum securities running around that end up being derby winners and things like that. I, that would be my hunch. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong a lot again. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the comment though, Ken. Move on to episode 26 uh, from from Crack Hill. C-K-R-A-C-K Hill. Uh, talking about Improbable after he won the Whitney a few weeks ago. Baffert said in an interview immediately after last year's cash call futurity, which would have been actually 2018 when he was a two-year-old, that Improbable could go a mile and a half. This is a very odd statement in that he was only two, but a statement that resurrected my handicapping leading up to Saturday. Now that he's four, we are starting to see his upside and how good he can be in terms of distance, speed, and positioning. Crack Hill, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I love your name, by the way. Um, I, You're right. I mean, it, it, that's definitely an intriguing comment to be made from a trainer with a two-year-old. And when he won the cash call, I believe it was his third lifetime start. I said I was still at the racing form at that time. I thought he was the best two-year-old that there was in that crop. And then I didn't think he took a, a step forward as a three-year-old. And 
the distance piece, I'll admit to being way wrong on because I felt like he was best going a flat mile. He looked really, really good winning the Whitney. And I think too many people misinterpreted what I was saying, excuse me, about the idea that you, you shouldn't be using the Whitney as the barometer of whether or not you think he's the best because he didn't, the horse that he was, the main competition didn't get a fair shake. So if you believed going into the Whitney that he was the best, I, I get, I'm all for that. But there was that, it, it's very difficult for to, to sit there and say, because of that one race, he's the best when the horse that the public had made the favorite ahead of him didn't get a fair shake because he stumbled badly out of the gate. So I'm not arguing with the idea that he's now fully matured as a four-year-old or, or on his way to fully maturing, and he's showing that ability to kind of create his own trip. Chris Larmy, who is an NHC Hall of Famer, brilliant contest player, a brilliant gambler in general, he's made that point that, you know, we, it's, you know, you can't cherry pick a horse like American Pharaoh. Well, he, he makes his own trips and that's what makes him a great horse. But then, and this was sort of in, in direct sort of uh, relation to a comment that I made about, you know, him having uh, improbable working out the candy trip of all candy trips. And, and Chris is right. You can't, I can't really sit there and, and cherry pick, but at the same time, Pharaoh worked out those sort of trips against the competition when they all had fair shakes. Tom Zaytad didn't have a fair shake in the Whitney. Would he have still worked out the same trip? It's entirely possible. Would he have blown Tom Zaytad's doors off? It's entirely possible. I'm not I'm not saying that that couldn't have happened. But to, to say that that was the race that ended up changing your opinion one way or the other, if you if you went into it not believing he was the best and then after that race thought he was the best, I don't, I'm not following the logic that you can do that without knowing what Tom Zaytok could or could not have done in that race had he broke alertly and been right there with improbable. That's all I'm saying with that. But your point is well taken. That Baffert has always thought highly of this horse. And he, by the way, he's still kind of a goofball as far as the gate is concerned. He reared up there in the gate in the Whitney. So that's always going to be in the back of my head with a horse like this at a short price because now... He is going to be, I mean, he's, he's right there. He's, I believe he's top two or three as far as the Breeders' Cup Classic rankings are concerned. Um, there was nothing for me to change this week, so that's why I'm not even really touching on that I, status quo until we move forward. Uh, but, you know, it, it, is, it is kind of a scary thought to think that you're just starting to see Improbable put it together. Because if he can continue to improve, then... Not only is he the best horse, but he could really start start putting the boots to these fields. Um, I just I want to I want to see the run against Tom Zeta. And now, like I said last week after Tis the Law, throw him into the mix. Randy Moss on Saturday's show for NBC, he he even said it. He goes, I have Tis the Law number one because I think he is right now the best horse in training, period. Then we'll see what happens this coming weekend with maximum security. Add him to the mix. All of a sudden, you you've got a pretty stacked top of the top of the list as far as the Breeders' Cup Classic is concerned. That's not including a horse like Code of Honor. That's not including a horse like Midnight Bisu. That's not inclu- including a horse. I, I have no idea what the story is, but a horse like Ben Battle, who over in Europe and over in the Middle East, he was so impressive when they made him. When they moved him over to the dirt. He ran really well over at Maidan, then he came back and ran a, a bang up race in the Saudi Cup. So. 
the, the classic is really turning into a fascinating division. And there are other horses who could very easily throw their hat into the ring and say, you know what, we shouldn't be overlooked in this division despite the fact that it feels like you've got three, four, five really, really talented runners for that group. Uh, again, Crackhill, thank you for the comment. Let's move on to uh, one last one. One last one for this this elongated Q&A, because we're up over almost 25 minutes. Uh, from last week's show, uh, Clinton Blake, when discussing Tis the Law, uh, the comment, I still don't get the take that running back in four weeks would be such a taxing proposition, question mark. Clinton, I, I agree with you at face value. Because to me, especially with a race like what we just saw from him, from Tis the Law in the Travers, he was so good, it never looked like he took a deep breath. If you want to say that he was that sharp and it's going to be difficult to continue to stay that sharp for that, for, you know, four weeks, four weeks, four weeks kind of thing, um, that that's a fair sort of question or, or uncertainty. Um it's not something that I want to bet against. So I'm not so much concerned about the Derby. I feel like if he does anything close to what he did two weeks ago in the Travers, or a week and a half ago at this point, uh, he's just going to win, plain and simple, because he's faster, he's more tactical, he's just a better horse. I will start to get concerned, not concerned. I'll be interested to see what happens then four weeks later in the Preakness. Can he continue to stay that sharp? Because in, in modern days, this is he's coming up on a ra- relatively unprecedented stretch of racing, given the distance and the time frame. We don't we don't see horses run nine and a half furlongs or greater. And I'm saying nine and a half because that's the Preakness distance. The other three races would be at ten furlongs. We don't see horses do that in this shorter window. You may see them run four races at that distance over the course of 12 months, but to run them consecutively month after month after month, that nowadays is, is it's unheard of. And um, why is it? I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a horseman. I don't really know. I, I can only assume that they're so valuable. The only analogy I can make, you know, if we want to use sort of sports is a, is, oh, wow, look at that. I'm rather shiny with this light up here. I'm just looking at the camera right now. Uh, those of you listening don't really care. And I don't, at this point, I don't care either. Um, but the idea is, if you want to make the comparison to a starting pitcher in baseball, where many, many moons ago, it would have been common for a starting pitcher to throw 250, 260 innings in a season. Now, the pitchers are coined workhorses if they get to like 205 or 210 innings. And I think it's just simply because the investment for the pitchers, the, the, you know, the amount of money that the New York Yankees spent on Garrett Cole or, you know, go over the past handful of years of Justin Verlander in Houston and Detroit, um, uh, Max Scherzer with the Nationals, um, you know, the amount of money that these guys are being paid the, the clubs are probably just trying to protect their investment, saying, we, we need you to be good. Even if we only get 185, 190 innings out of you, we need that, but we need it for the next six years. With these racehorses, that shelf life isn't even that long, but the idea is we need you to be at your best four times this year because you're going to be gone here pretty quick. You're going to be off to, to stud. 
So we want you to be as sharp as possible. We don't want the potential for injury to creep up or X, Y, and Z. But to your point, Clinton, I find it fascinating that they work as much as they do, but they don't race in the afternoon. And I just, you know, I, I don't know. Is there a perfect... I, I just think it's probably the, the way that, from, from an economic standpoint, I think that has more to do with why this is such an unprecedented piece. And to your, you know, your question, you don't, you don't get why it's why this would be such a taxing sort of accomplishment. It's just not done anymore. And for me, the back-to-back, that's not that big a deal, especially with the way that he looked uh, upstate. We get to the Preakness. Maybe he's still just too good. That Breeders' Cup Classic, that fourth race in four months, at a distance like that, and against older horses, at a track he's never seen before. Keeneland can be quirky. Just saying. Thank you to all of you who have left comments and questions. I apologize for not getting to them over the past few weeks. Um, maybe this is the best way to do it, though. You know, I, I'm still encouraging. Leave thoughts, uh, questions, comments, concerns, whatever it may be, beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. But maybe this is the best way to do it, sort of just cultivate them and do it once every other week or once every three weeks kind of thing uh, and we'll go from there again the friday feature for this week saratoga's seventh race leave your selection beneath the video player on youtube uh, however you listen to this thing please rate review and subscribe it helps us all around at in the money media uh, if you're on youtube please subscribe give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down make sure the bell icon is lit up so you get a notification anytime new content is uploaded on the In The Money page. If you are on Apple Podcasts or any of the other places that you listen to it as far as your devices are concerned, please subscribe, please rate, and please review. Please follow me on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. I will be back next Monday with episode 29 of the Matt Bernie Show. Until then, good luck however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play.